One of the, uh, that's not going to fall over, is it? One of the blessings for you of Vacation Bible School is that they got me on a timer. So, you know the drill. We have till 11.50. So, it's kind of cool, though. It kind of takes me back to my seminary training days where you have to do this to a timer. So, well, we're in Revelation 3. Uh, We've been looking at the church at Sardis, uh, and that started because... Uh, as we look around at what the world is like today with uh, all the violence and immorality and, you know, and we're tempted to to get discouraged or depressed and whatnot. Uh, we see in this church, even though it was spiritually dead, that there were a few who were alive. So what we know is that even in the darkest places, God has some light and we want to make sure that we are not contributing to the problems of our world by not being godly people as we are commanded to be. And so uh, if you have your outlines, anyone need that? Um, the outlines, I know ushers out there, uh, if, if uh, you want to come in, if people didn't get the outline. Uh, the one that we have been working on, I kind of tweaked it and redid it. So um, the one you've been using the last two weeks isn't going to help too much today. So... If you would like that, uh, just raise your hand. Those guys will bring you, uh, bring in the outline for you. Yeah, you want to come in? Anybody need that outline for today? Okay. Ruth, do you need it? Well, don't be afraid. You've got to raise your hand up. Okay. Okay. Wow. I don't know. You, that's not like you to be so shy. Okay. All right. I don't, I don't know what she's afraid of, but okay. Anyone else? Judy, you got to raise this? Hand? Oh, I thought you were... Oh, some of you ladies, I don't know what you're doing. It's like usually you're like, so, I don't know. Okay. So my point is, if you have your outline, look at page two, uh, number six, because that's kind of where we're at. We don't want to backtrack since we're uh, on a tight schedule here. Um, some of the things uh, that we've been looking at, that the Lord comes uh, and he is going to reward these few that are trying to be godly. Uh, in a very ungodly world. And that's one of the points he's trying to make here. Uh, that as believers, there's a lot of temptation out there. There's a lot of ways that we can dirty our garments, so to speak. But what we have learned is when he's talking about garments, he's really talking about our character. And that godly character uh, in keeping ourselves holy, keeping ourselves pure, keeping ourselves right in a world which is totally the opposite. So what we see in this passage is that it is possible to stay clean in a very dirty world. Uh, it's not always easy, but he says it's possible and the Lord commends those that do that. And it's interesting that he says uh, that their reward for doing so is to walk with the Lord. And he's talking about salvation, to walk with the Lord forever uh, for all those, because we see here. In Revelation 3, a little bit of allusion to the great doctrine of election uh, and perseverance, meaning when he says in their names will not be erased from the book. He's not saying that it's possible for one to lose his salvation. He's saying that one who is truly saved can never be erased from God's book. And so really what we learn is that perseverance isn't so much of me holding on to the Lord as it is the Lord holding on to me. And that nothing can break that is what uh, John is saying to encourage these churches. And so he says on that last day uh, when the world files in before Jesus, 
He says, for those few who have not denied him, he will not deny them before his father and before the angels. What he's talking about is true followers of Jesus are not afraid to take a public stand for their commitment to him. Now this is getting a little more relevant, isn't it? Because it's becoming more and more of a challenge, is it not, to take a clear stand for the Lord? Because it's getting, you know, it's becoming a darker and darker place in our country, isn't it? So he's saying a true disciple of Jesus is not afraid to publicly acknowledge that. You know, and rather than preach again and again and again on what that means, I thought it would be better and more exciting to actually see an example from the scriptures of someone who was not ashamed to stand up for the Lord. So that means we go back to the book of First Samuel. So go back into your Old Testaments to the book of First Samuel, chapter 17, because we're going to look at a story that you might think you're familiar with. The, the tale or the story, the true story of David and Goliath. However, I think this story has been greatly abused. And I think we can be tempted to miss the real message of this story If we simply think that it's about facing our giants, you know, like David faced his, uh, being courageous, you know, those kinds of things are part of the story. But I don't think that's really what this story is all about. I think and hopefully you will agree with me because I love it when you agree with me, uh, just like marriage and family. The dad loves it when everyone just agrees with him. It's just so much better that way, even if he's not right. Hopefully you'll think that and you'll see that I'm right. But I think that the story of David and Goliath is really a story about God's honor or God's name. And you'll see that on page two of your outlines, Roman numeral four. I think that the story of David and Goliath is really a story of God's Honor. And I think that relates to the church at Sardis, relates to those who are not ashamed in a public way to stand up for God's name or our Lord's name when it's being dishonored. I think sometimes we're afraid to speak up. Sometimes we don't know what to say. Sometimes we don't know if it's appropriate to say anything in a certain situation. But we're going to look at that. We'll see this more and more as we move through this story. And the outline is very detailed because I don't want you to miss anything. But don't worry. We only have 25 minutes left, so we will be done. I know some of you smile. I see you smiling when I say that. Okay. All right. We'll do our best, though, to get this done. Notice that the theme of this episode between David and Goliath is in verse 47. When David says what? The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. That is the theme of this whole account. Why? Because we see that David is Israel's warrior king. God is the one who gives David strength and victory. David has been anointed as Israel's next king. But when he goes to fight Goliath, he is not king yet. Who is the king? Saul is the king. But David has been anointed as the next king. David is the king in waiting, and the scriptures tell us that he is a man after God's own heart. 
Now, notice what your outline says next. And if you like to circle, highlight, or underline, this is the time to do it. David demonstrates what God can do through a faithful servant. Don't forget that as we move through this account. He demonstrates to us what God can do through just one faithful servant. The other thing that's really a good technique to learn a lot from the scriptures, especially if you're reading through an Old Testament book or one of the Gospels, we can learn a lot if we take note of how those present respond. There seems to always be an audience. There seems to be a mixed audience. And so as we read through an account, we want to see how those who are present respond to what's being said by God or about God or what God is doing or what Jesus is doing. So in this account, we have believers, obviously David, but we also have in this story unbelievers who would obviously be Goliath and the Philistines, right? But then there's usually a third category that we can call, quote, innocent bystanders, or we can call, quote, neutral parties. And in this case, it's going to be who? Saul, the Israelites, as well as David's brothers, particularly the oldest brother, Eliab, because he particularly has a chip on his shoulder uh, because he was the best looking, the most talented. He was the obvious choice to be the next king. But God chose to go the opposite route and chose the youngest, the most insignificant So as we start this story in 1 Samuel 17, what do we see? We see that the Philistines are invading Judah, which is the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. They're driving deep into the territory until Saul and his army show up. Then there's sort of a military stalemate here and nothing is happening. But you see, the Philistines have this giant man by the name of Goliath. And he says, I have an idea, which was not uncommon during this time. Rather than hundreds of people being killed, why don't we send out our best guy and you send out your best guy? And the one who wins, the whole nation wins. Sometimes I think that would be great. Let's have Bashar al-Assad of Syria send out his best guy. We'll send out our best guy. I like our chances. Or, you know, let's let ISIS send out their best one person. We'll send out our best one person. I like our chances. We don't do that anymore today, do we? But that's what they're going to do. So Goliath, because Israel and Saul, the army, they're terrified. This is God's anointed king, God's anointed army. And by the way, if it's God's anointed king and God's anointed army, it's as if it's God himself. God's representative on earth. So page three on your outline. See how fast we're going. You're in shock. We're halfway done already. So Israel's quivering. They're terrified. They're afraid because Goliath comes out every day and taunts the, the armies of Israel. And you see there that. King Saul and his army seem to be neutral bystanders. And this is important. But their inaction proves their faithlessness. Does that make sense to you? Makes sense to me. 
The fact that they didn't do anything says that they didn't have faith. There is no such thing as being neutral with God. Jesus said what? You're either for me or against me. There is no Switzerland in the story of David and Goliath. Well, by the way, we found out Switzerland wasn't so neutral as we thought, unfortunately. Saul and the Israelites are God's army and king, yet they don't do anything while this pagan shames them and their God. They lack David's zeal and David's faith. It's interesting. Because they were being faithless, they couldn't see their situation the way that God saw their situation. With their worldly wisdom, they're afraid and they're wondering who's going to come out here and fight this giant for us. So David shows up at the camp and he shows up. Verse 23 of chapter 17 tells us First Samuel 17, 23. As David was talking to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath was coming up from the army of the Philistines and he spoke the same words that he had been speaking And this is very important in the text. And David heard them. That's going to be very important. David heard the words that Goliath was spewing out against his God, against his nation, and against his army. David becomes incensed. Notice in verses 10, 26, and 36 where he says, This uncircumcised Philistine, how is it that he is disgracing Israel? How is it that he is defying the army of the living God? How is it that he is heaping shame on them? David is hot. Because God's name is being mocked. That's what's making him mad. That's interesting. We're going to develop that a little bit more. David recognizes what? David recognizes that Goliath's words are an affront to God. That Goliath is attacking God's name, God's character. And that makes him very upset. And so he offers to fight Goliath in the name of his own God. Now, the Israelites and the army and King Saul had lost sight of God's honor. And so they couldn't understand what in the world is David thinking? Why would he want to go out there and fight this giant? You know, it was only because they weren't seeing God's name being impugned that they were wondering, what is David doing? I mean, because Saul's armor in itself weighed over 125 pounds, I think. His, the, the head on his spear was 15 pounds, and he's a giant. Your footnote may tell you how tall he was. I can't remember now. Uh, what is it? Nine feet, nine inches. That's tall. Now he's going to be on an episode of that show, My Giant Life. That's huge. We watched just a couple seconds. We were channel surfing. That girl was like six nine. We thought, wow, he was Goliath is nine feet nine inches. That's okay. David's ready. He's got a little wooden staff and a slingshot. He's good to go. 
These, these, the army and King Saul, even his brother. Remember what his brother says to him? Verses 28 to 30. If you peruse over that, he goes, you just came out here because you want to see a bloodbath. And David's like, what are you talking about? So David turned around, ignored his brother and went and asked the same question of other people. I'll go. I'll do this. So King Saul relents and he sends David out on a suicide mission. Armed, it should say with a staff, not a stat. It's like when someone gets hurt, you've got to give them a stat. Staff in a sling. Now look at verses 43 and 44 of 1 Samuel 17. Because do you realize that the verbal conflict that comes before the battle itself is really the most intense part of this story? Because Goliath insults David, he curses him by the Philistine gods, he promises the ultimate humiliation for an Israelite, meaning you're going to be killed, I'm going to leave you laying out here, and then the birds are going to pick the meat off your bones and just eat you while you're laying out there. But you know what? Goliath's taunts and verbal jabs were not a match for David's. Look at verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly of Israel may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So Goliath comes at I mean, this verbal exchange between these two far exceeds the battle, because we learn that this battle or this verbal confrontation is really a contest between two gods. It's not really between Goliath and David. It's not really a contest between the Philistines and the Israelites. This is going to be a contest between the one true living God and the false dead gods of the Philistines. And David realizes that. And so we're on the edge of our seats. We're thinking David has to win or God's going to look really bad. Notice that this idea is seen throughout both the entire books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, that the battle belongs to the Lord. You know, and the physical battle itself is over. It takes you about 20 seconds to read the account. David charges at him, slings that stone, hits him in the head, kills him. He falls over dead. That took about 20 seconds. But it's this verbal exchange about honor and vindication that is really supposed to grab our attention. In 1 Samuel 2, you see in your outlines, Hannah says what? It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will give strength to his king. And then as 2 Samuel closes, in chapter 22, David says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. You armed me with strength for a battle. So we see this theme that the battle belongs to the Lord. But we want to keep digging Deeper. 
to learn even more about what God's trying to tell us here. Notice the prominence of God's honor at the beginning of the story, during the turning point and in the climax. That Goliath insults the honor of Israel, so he insults God himself. And no one rises to God's defense. Not Saul the king, not the army of Israel, not David's brother. No one does anything until David shows up. They're all cowering in fear, allowing God's name to be dragged through the mud. Notice that David's courage is no accident. It wasn't just a spur of the moment, a spontaneous, emotional decision to be courageous and to run out here into this battle. David had already had for many years a deep, strong affectionate walk with God. He knew God well. He was a regular worship of God, worshiper of God. He's already been anointed as the next king. And it's this love and catch this. Here's another circle highlight underline moment for your outlines. That his love for God and his honor, his love for God and his honor for God is what gave David his discernment and what made him burn at Goliath's offense. It's because he loved God so much. It's because he wanted to see God's name honored so much is what motivated him to take action. And you know what we're saying, and we don't really like to hear it. Sometimes we are inactive Toward the things of God, because our love for God is not what it should be. We are not motivated to get up and take action for the things of the Lord, because we have not nurtured that love relationship with him. We aren't offended. We aren't burning with holy anger at unrighteousness and sin. Because our walk with God is not what it should be. Does that make you feel good? Okay, good. It's not my goal to make us feel good. Okay. The story of David and Goliath is therefore what we call theocentric. In other words, just like the book of Ruth, the star of the story of David and Goliath is God. It's not David. It's not Saul, it's not Goliath, it's not the armies, it's God himself. Because God was at the center of David's life, it bothered him when God's name was shamed and dishonored. God does it all in this story. He raised up an anointed, zealous servant king. He brought him into the battle at just the right moment. I'm on page four now. He inspired him to see the issue as it was. And God empowered David to defeat the foe. Thus, God defended his honor and turned back the invading army. What are some applications that we can take from this? In other words, here's what the text is saying. How do we bring it into our lives today? And you see throughout your outlines, a couple times we put a spot for you to reflect What is it that God wants you to think and what is it that God wants you to do? 
And folks, always remember that. Anytime you open your Bible, God is asking you to think certain things, and he's asking you to do something. We already saw the sin of inactivity on the part of King Saul in the army of Israel, didn't we? There is no such thing as being neutral in the things of the Lord. And let me say, I think it's on the outline later, but let me just point out, this is not a call to duty to do the very same thing that David did. God's not calling us to rise up and use our slingshot and hit unbelievers in the forehead and knock, you know, kill. That's not what it is. But we'll see as we do our application in a moment. Application number one, expect God to defend his honor. Expect God to defend his honor. First Samuel chapter two says those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. Isn't that what he told those few faithful in the church at Sardis? If you're not ashamed of me, then on that day, I'm not going to be ashamed of you. If you honor me by your obedience and your love, then I will do the same for you. On the day that you stand before my throne. Wow. Can you fast forward? Can you fast forward in your head to that day when you're going to be standing before the Lord? Because every person, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, every person will stand before that throne. And I want to, I hope, I hope that I'll hear that. Uh, that you have honored me. You have not been ashamed of me. Therefore, I'm not ashamed of you. And in front of my, my father, in front of all these angels, in front of everybody else, I'm going to honor you by saying, enter into my kingdom. David was willing to step up and redeem God's name and to rescue God's people with no thought of himself. Number two, second application. God always defends and protects his people. So in victory, we see that David is foreshadowing Jesus' defeat of Satan. That both David and Jesus had zeal for God's honor. Didn't Jesus say, zeal for your house will consume me? That's why he went into the temple those two times and overturned the tables of the money changers. Because what was at stake was God's honor, God's name. Once again, we're not saying you go in there and you turn everything over. We'll see in a moment. Both Jesus and David delivered God's people From a destroying foe. And notice carefully too. That both Jesus and David. Delivered others and rescued others. From a position of their own weakness. The weakness of the cross. From the weakness of death. And bloodshed. Jesus rescues us. David. From the weakness of being a very young man. From the weakness of not having the same armor. And the same weapons. But both being able to deliver from weakness. Didn't Paul tell the Corinthians that God's power is made perfect in our weakness? Application number three. And by the way, we have six things listed here and we could go on and on, I'm sure, in application. We have seven minutes, so we'll just do seven minutes. Worth. You guys love the timer. I could see it. It gives you hope. It gives you a sense of hope. You look more hopeful when you know that the preacher has to be done at 1150. Okay. And by the way, VBS is over in four weeks. We're going right back to it. We're going off the timer. So 
unless there's a congregational vote or something. I don't know. So. All right. A third point of application could be that God's redemptive work leads some to faith, but leaves others in unbelief. You ever notice that? You ever wonder, why doesn't everybody embrace Christ? I don't understand. I share the gospel. I share the Lord with so-and-so, and I have been for years. But in God's divine, sovereign, elective wisdom, some turn away from redemption. Goliath and the Philistines were unbelievers. Saul and the armies were doubters. Notice how David's heroic act elicits different types of responses. And those that speak and work on God's behalf will always experience this. Some will respond to our efforts at sharing the gospel and be saved, and some will turn away. Even in our own homes, that happens. Eliab, his brother, was what? Skeptical. Saul was suspicious. Saul's son, Jonathan, embraced David's God and became a believer. On your own time, look at the different responses in Luke 5 when Jesus healed a paralytic. You had the scribes and the Pharisees. You had the crowds. And then you had the paralyzed man and his friends. Different responses. David is an active believer. Saul and his army were not merely neutral. They were cowards. Number four, a fourth point of application. Unbelief can breed culpable. That means you're held responsible for inaction and cowardice in every Israelite agent. But David Saul and his army froze. It made Eliab jealous. And their faithlessness deprived them of the insight that the battle belongs to the Lord. Sometimes if we're not strong in the Lord, if we're not strong in the faith, when the challenge comes, we're not equipped to discern the real issues, to see the importance of what is really taking place. It's almost like we've either turned our spiritual radar off or because of our spiritual apathy and inactivity, we've lowered our sensitivity And we actually endanger ourselves and maybe others. A fifth application. We can really abuse the story here of David and Goliath if we're thinking simply that Christians should fight giants just like David did. What we want to do to dig really deep into what God's trying to tell us in the story of David and Goliath is to think about what motivated David To act the way that he did when everyone else was so afraid. Sometimes I think we want to dismiss David and say, oh, he was just young and crazy and stupid. That's how young guys are. They jump into things without thinking. And this time it just happened to work out for him. That's not what's happening here. We should see that David's motivation is his relentlessly theocentric outlook. In other words, God was the center of David's life in everything he thought, everything he felt, everything he said, everything he wrote, everything he did. His heart beat to be pleasing to his God, to know his God, to love his God, to obey his God. And what did that do? That sort of outlook 
created the zeal that liberated his courage. It was his relationship with God that made him courageous. It wasn't a man-made, manufactured bravery just on the spur of the moment. He was able to stand up and not be ashamed because he had an anchored relationship with God. And it bothered him deeply that his God was being shamed and dishonored. I think I hear the Philistines surrounding the citadel. I have two minutes. Okay. The last thing. Look at number six, our sixth point of application. David's zeal for God is meant to probe us. We are meant to stop and think about ourselves when we think about David and his motivation. Think of it this way. What stirs our passions? What makes us angry? We're quick to get angry at personal offenses, right? What do you do when someone cuts you off on the freeway without a turn signal? I hate that. Ask my wife. I go into these diatribes and she just gets real quiet. What happens when the neighbor parks in your spot? That's really rude. Don't they know that's my house? That's where I park every night. I don't care if she's 85 and in a wheelchair. That's my spot. But the littlest offenses set us off, right? But we stay calm when the name of Jesus is maligned or dragged through the mud. Or when holiness and godliness is maligned or put on trial. We stay silent. The scriptures are clear that there is a place for indignation over sin and grief over sin. And what does David's older brother show us? That if we stop, if we lose sight of God's honor, we may fall into a misguided concern for our own. It's only when I stop thinking about exalting the name of Jesus that it becomes more important that I exalt my own. So the cure for ungodliness is a close walk with the Lord. Really, that's a cure for almost everything that ails us. This is not a call to duty to act like David did. But it's a call to know that victory rests in godly character. Fidelity to God and a willingness to fight for God's name. That's what it means to not be ashamed Of the Lord before men. To pursue godly character. To have a zeal for the honor of the Lord's name. And a willingness to step up and say something. When that name is being maligned. Father I pray that you would. Burn these things in our hearts. That when we see the story of David and Goliath. We wouldn't fixate upon David or Goliath. But upon your name. And that David had great courage because he had a great relationship with you. And perhaps things of the world, sinful things, don't bother us in our own lives and in the world because our walk with you isn't what it should be. So really the cure is a deeper love for you.
So that's what we pray for, Father, to make a difference in this world as it grows darker and darker. We have to deepen our commitment and our love for you and for our Lord. The best defense is a great offense. So, Father, please pull us into you. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Shake us out of our doldrums. Wake us up. Teach us to hunger and thirst for things that you want us to, not the things of the world. Because it starts to dull our senses. And we become desensitized to the things that that you don't approve of. So, Father, as we look at David, may we look to model his deep, affectionate walk with you. His love for you, his commitment to you. That came deep from within his heart because he loved you. Thank you, dear Father, for loving us, for sending Jesus to cover for our sins. And may we repay that with gratitude and with a zeal and a desire to follow you all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.